So we're on page 12, and we're looking at Luke chapter 13. And we're starting with verses 22 to 30. Shalina, would you please read, why don't you read the whole section? I think it's actually better if we do it in sections rather than trading off. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding in his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and from south and will recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. That's an interesting version. Which uh, translation is that? It's a little bit interpretive for NASB. (laughs) (laughs) My version has for that last line, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. And I think sometimes we translate it, uh, the first will be last and the last first. Mm-hmm. Meaning everybody who's last will be first and everyone yeah. who's first will be last. So this is one of Jesus' most difficult passages, shall we say? Yeah. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? What do you think Jesus' answer is to that? What it should be or what it was? What it was. What did Jesus? What was Jesus' answer? Did he answer that question? Maybe is a better way to put it. Not, I don't think he really answered in that way. Like I think they were kind of. It's almost like a. They're asking almost like in a Calvinistic way, like almost saying like, well, "Is there this amount that will be saved?" Kind of like the hundred and forty-four thousand. <laughs> yeah, and Jesus just says that it's a narrow way, and essentially that if you follow him, that you'll be able to. But. It's not. It's not easy. Okay. I, th- I think it's a pot. That he's saying yes. There's a few people that will make it. It, it seems to be implied, doesn't yeah. it? Because uh, you, that narrow door seems to be very hard to find. So uh, let's move to the narrow door. What is that narrow door? And why is that so hard for people to find it? Well, I think part of it's. Because they're saying they ate and drank with him and so forth, that a lot of people are kind of following, but they're not really thinking it through or praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit and working with them. They're just kind of following along. It's a nice kind of social club or that makes them feel good. It's exciting. Yeah. You're getting caught up. But this is good. We'd yeah. like it. Yeah. <clears throat> kind yeah. of on the wave of emotion right. rather than thinking it through. Thinking about it and committing and. Any other ideas on what that narrow door looks like? Isn't the narrow door, I think it would be Jesus, because Jesus says he's the way. How's Jesus narrow? I mean, here's this person who's so inclusive of people. How is he narrow? Well, he's really the only one. You know, you hear this concept, well, all roads lead to heaven. Doesn't matter which church you go to or if you go to church, you know, if you live a good life and... God will, God will save you because he's, he's nice. Yeah. And he's going to let everybody in. What's wrong with that? It doesn't really imply transformation by the person. We're good enough the way we are, aren't we? No need to change. Doesn't this remind you guys of the rich young ruler? Yeah, go sell everything you have. He's like, nah. <laughs> you know, you've touched on something that I think is important. I I read a book yesterday that I found in. Uh, we have a set of books in the de- uh, department seminar room. 
that's for theology majors to pick up if they want to take them. They're books that usually retired pastors come and bring by the department, and, and we put them on the shelf and, and let students have at them. And I, I saw this book. I don't know that I'll keep it. I think it's a fictionalized account. But it's, a, it's called Playing God. And it's about a couple who moved to, from Tennessee to Maine and, and joined the local Adventist church. And uh, they decide that the poor church needs a facelift, and since he's a doctor with lots of money, uh, they decide they're going to kind of pay their way. Whatever they want done, they'll pay for it. And that way the church will have it. And then they start trying to control everybody and, and try to get them up to their standard. And, and uh, they're very hard on their two sons, trying to force them into line. It's all about trying to make other people be good. You know, and and th- these, these are very strict Adventist uh, couple. And the problem with them is very simple. They think they're okay. And that therefore, that gives them license to control and judge everybody else. And that's why the title, Playing God. I think you touched on something with the rich young ruler, because remember, the people who were wealthy had a free ticket to heaven. And if you were wealthy, that meant God was blessing you. And the prevailing view is, of course, God is the one who determines everybody's salvation. It isn't us. Now, I know by saying that, I... I, probably sounded like I'm talking about we have to work our way to heaven, and that's not what I mean at all. Eternal life is our decision about God. And our decision about God is based on who he is in in terms of salvation. And if we don't buy into his self-sacrificing love, rich young ruler giving everything he has to feed the poor, if we don't buy into his self-sacrificing love and we don't choose that love because God's love is only self-sacrificing. It is not self-sacrificing and selfish at the same time. Um, if we don't buy into that, we miss that narrow door. That's the narrow door. It's self. Or it's, it's excluding self, I should say. It's sort of like, remember Jesus uses the parable the eye, the camel going mm-hmm. through the eye of a needle. It's very possible that the eye of the needle that Jesus is talking about is a gate in Jerusalem that is very narrow and very short, very low. Uh, and the only way anybody could get through, or any camel could get through it, was they had to kneel and he had to take all his load off. And then he could get through it. So I really think that that self is what keeps us from finding that narrow road. And worshiping a nice God who's going to just let anyone in this new Jerusalem that wants to be there or thinks they want to be there assumes that we can just take a self along. Or we can go to heaven mm-hmm. and we can do the same things up there that we do down here. Uh, which, what, why don't we just stay here and and God keep us alive, you know. Mm-hmm. Why do we need to go anywhere? I have, I have another thought on this narrow road, looking at the dynamics of the church. We seem to be getting increasingly divided between two extremes in the church. And we tend to call those two extremes the liberals and the conservatives. Is the narrow road, by any chance that narrow strip of land between those two extremes. I'm becoming increasingly convinced it must be because the two extremes polarize each other. It's, it's sort of like they're playing teeter-totter. And whoever has the most weight throws the other one up and then they've got to get more weight to bring it back down. And, and, and there we are at this kind of... And it is who gets control of the church. Yeah. My colleague, Judy Ness, and I talk about this frequently. And we talk about the kind of the Eastern idea of uh, the, middle, the middle way, middle path. And that's where we try to stay in our department, is navigating this middle way. And it's really hard to stay there. It is. 
Yeah, it is. Because you, you're constantly getting these tensions to pull you one way or exactly. another. Exactly. And so we constantly have to remind ourselves that, no, the middle path is the better path. But, it, again, it's very difficult to, to stay there because of these two... Because, because we feel the pressure. Yeah. Uh, and, and let me tell you, extreme liberals can put enormous psychological pressure on us. Mm-hmm. And, they ex- and, and the same. And the, the same other. with the conservatives. The conservatives are a little more punitive about it. But there's, there's this sense of you aren't with it unless you are on our side. And, and you think any, any family quarrel where you have sides, uh, isn't that the dynamic and to try to be maintain a middle stance is extremely difficult. And and often there is one side that initiates and, and is more at fault than the other. But to bring that to light, you can't join one side or the other. You have to stay on the middle of the road. And once you do, uh, I'll have to I'll have to bring this up. Um, I was in a situation one time where there was polarization. There was three against three. And I unfortunately took a side. So I was one of the three on the one side. <laughs> and um, something happened that completely shifted my, my way of dealing with that. And I announced to the entire situation that from now on, I was not going to talk about anybody in the department except in departmental meetings where it was out in the open. We were not going to have these closed-door discussions in my sphere of things. Because the three of us used to meet in my office <laughs> and we'd have these discussions. And so I said, no more of that. And that really threw the other two in the threesome that I was in, a real curveball. They didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know where to go. My feeling is that God took care of the situation and the other three that were on the opposing side, two of them left. And that dynamic was broken. But I don't think it could break as long as there was a staunch three against three. Mm-hmm. Something had to change. So that narrow road down the center, center aisle, Judy and I have talked about this this concept quite frequently, as I said, and we actually talk about Ellen White's visions, her early vision about that narrow path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and, it's, and you know who falls off it, of it. But but they fall off on one side and the other. Right, right. Yeah, so. And they fall off because they start looking at other people and their faults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe that's... Maybe that's what she's talking about. I think is so. This narrow door, this I narrow think so. Path. I think so. I think it's like yeah. I think that first vision should should be uh, posted somewhere on every church door. <laughs> How hard it is to stay yeah. on that narrow. Well, and 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 it's to me, it's such a vision to carry us all the way through, mm-hmm. kind of vision. I mean, it, it 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 says this is the problem you're always going to be faced with. It's a pollock. It's the problem with balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I think of that mentally is using both left and right prefrontal cortex is the same. Equal. Equally. Mm-hmm. And and that's why, you know, in, in God and Human Suffering class, that's where you can really get off balance. Mm-hmm. We start using logic, sheer logic, to define everything. Um, and you, you're moving in this very linear uh, route, and and then you take it over into the experiential <laughs> sphere, and it falls apart, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or you do experiential stuff without any logic to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you fall off the path. You fall off the path. Yeah. So so that's how I see it is is really um, using both sides of our brains uh, well, to think about. So oh, there's not a very good. Understanding the concept of staying balanced and staying in the middle. That it's that it's like you can't make decisions, you're just wishy-washy, you go either way. Or, 
uh, I don't think that's well understood. And Adventists particularly are really afraid of the concept of the yin and the yang and the balance and these kind of concepts. Because the Eastern philosophies have their own version, of course, of right. staying in the middle. But uh, Their version to me seems a little bit of a blend of good and evil, which well, I, is, I, yeah. I, I stay away from. And, and they recognize there's, a, but they also recognize there is good and evil. Right. And it's a battle to stay in the balance in between there. But I, I just don't think people have a very good concept of staying in the middle. Everything is approached from one side or the other. Now, on a national level, we're having trouble with that now, too. <laughs> the toilet issue. Mm-hmm. The target has been targeted. Yeah, I could say some things about my friends on Facebook in that. <laughs> I'll refrain. But they, they feel like they have to stay one side or the other. That's not trying to stay in the middle. I just don't think the middle's well understood what that actually means. You feel like you have to make some decision one way. Because because we we tend to be all or nothing human beings. We like things cut and dried. We like things um, planned. But I think we're you know it's part of our fallen nature. We talk about different cognitive distortions. Mm-hmm. from a cognitive behavioral perspective and one of the number one cognitive distortions is that all or nothing thinking you know, I'm either all good or I'm all bad yeah or they're all good and, or they're and, all good and, or all bad yeah we either want to worship someone as a god or we want to denigrate them as a demon and we, we or not believe in anything or not believe in anything right all, they really all or nothing uh-huh. yeah. I think also like there might be some confusion also with um, that middle ground just because in Revelation it talks about you're either hot or cold and then I wish you were I, either hot or cold yeah. instead of lukewarm is yeah. the middle ground lukewarm so, <laughs> so I think that people kind of get scared mm-hmm. of that middle ground because they're afraid of being lukewarm, lukewarm. so to speak but I think that hmm. there's it's important to maintain that um the real, that balance maybe of, real real middle ground is being both hot and cold when you need to be. Hot or cold when you need to be. Or you could say that if you're middle ground, you can have a real enthusiasm and commitment to that and uh, energy there and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's That's the problem is we're trying to think of it as this side or this side. That a more continuum... And so you can be uh, energized wherever you are here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That middle ground doesn't mean you're just, well... We the water, the hot water doesn't stop flowing right. through the pipes just because you're in the middle right. Right. at the beginning of the right. source. Yeah. That's an interesting way of putting it. Maybe warm in spirit and in zeal and cool-headed in thinking. But again, what to me, what enables us to be in that middle road is the willingness to die to self, the willingness to to lose ourselves in in otherness, to lose ourselves from um, a preoccupation of focus on ourselves. I mean, it, here we have two uh, therapists here uh, in in psychotherapy. Uh, isn't a lot of our problems rooted in in this ourselves being the focus? Well, yes, but we also use concepts of like low self-esteem. So right. a lot of our work really does focus, I think, on helping the person focus on themselves. But I, I hear I, he's not here. Doug isn't here. But Doug often says that when a, uh, when a student comes to him. For counseling says how are you Mr. Ammon then he knows that the healing has begun mm-hmm. because that other focus well, has taken place yes when we're sick we have to deal with, with that but when we begin to be healthy is when we become other, other focused mm-hmm. what Doug's talking about is like, you look at all the symptoms of depression and mental illness it's always going to be internalized everybody their, their focus is going to be on self. Right. 
I just want to crawl in bed under some covers, turn off the lights. Yeah. Yeah. And feel miserable. And feel miserable. Yeah. Um, whereas the things that you teach them to do is to be others focused, do random acts of kindness for others. Yeah. There's nothing I think more. Even in the dining commons with a community. Right. You know. I think, I think there is nothing more elevating one's personal perspective about themselves than to do that. But again, yeah, not to lose where we've been going for the last, what, years? <laughs> uh, we only get that from tapping into the source of, of love mm. and recognizing how much he loves us. Uh, that My favorite text. He, we love because he first loved us. Still has to stand. And maybe that is the narrow door. Maybe Jesus, back to Jesus, he is the narrow door that we, we often preoccupy ourselves with everything in, in religious circles. We talk about everything from, um, well, historically, the daily, <laughs> to, um, to the latest scandal in the church, to the latest problem in the church, to to everything around Jesus, but not Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then when a group of people arise in the church that want to talk just about Jesus, they're scandalous. We don't know what to do with them. How dare you say Jesus only? How dare you say uh, the one thing we're going to focus on is Jesus? I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about here. Uh, I'm talking about the one project. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying the one project is, is perfect, but what, I'm, what I do think it's sad that we're not just jumping aboard and saying, you know, we ought to be on this too. <laughs> we ought to be talking about Jesus uh, and, and focusing on him. I think that largely, I think, because we don't really understand who Jesus is and what this love message is and giving yourself. Because as humans, we're always externalizing. We're looking to see what else everybody else is wearing. Am I fitting in in my conversations, what I'm doing? And we externalize these verses about uh, the rich man that was brought up earlier. Was Christ really saying he had to give everything up? Or was he really looking at his self? Was he really to give up his self and follow Christ? Or the man, uh, that the two men and one man, was he wanting to get his family all set up together? Was the dad really dead? Or is he really saying, I want to get the family all organized, then I'll follow you. Uh, we, we keep looking for these outside measures of showing that we're okay and, and so forth. And and we see it all the time in, you know, like you say, the depression or someone that's uh, acting out psychologically some way, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's always as tangible things out there to avoid ourselves and what are we, who are we, and what are we doing. And then we avoid Christ because we don't really understand that process. Yeah. That's why I'm looking at him more. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a very important point. Um, what is interesting is if you look at verse 25, the last part, when they're banging on the door, open to us, you will answer, I don't know you, or where you come from. And that seems harsh, but that's the problem, isn't it? And when, when Jesus says, I don't know you, it isn't that he doesn't know who we are. He doesn't identify with us, and we, because we haven't identified with him. We're not in the same ballpark. He doesn't know where we've come from. Meaning, he doesn't understand, he doesn't experientially understand our selfish mindset that leads us to try to control other people, to this externalistic fitting in kind of lifestyle, instead of attempting to focus on Jesus and that allowing us to free ourselves because we are loved. Once we accept the love of Jesus in our hearts, once we believe that he really loves us, that sets us free to do all kinds of things that we would not under other circumstances be able to do. So it, it is, uh, we can talk about paradigms, for example, as a, as a way of getting at this. I don't know where you come from. I don't know your paradigm. 
uh, meaning you don't you haven't adopted the nature and the principles of the kingdom uh, into your life in an experiential way that you really understand the concept of love because really are we known as Adventists to be the most loving church I'm quite convinced we're not we're more likely to be known as the most hypocritical judgmental church one of the most yeah depending on where you sit and where you are I mean there are some churches that are exceptional but we tend we tend to have this this mode of this lack and it is the lack of embracing the love of Jesus so when we start focusing on Jesus we get when people start focusing on Jesus we get nervous because we ha- we can't identify with the love we can't identify the door looks like a wall that narrow door and we don't find it notice verse 28 there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. In Jesus' day, this is something to know, when Jesus, in Jesus' day, it was understood that only the elite in Jerusalem had salvation. There were these, these uh, the Pharisees, understood that they had salvation. Anybody who could trace their genealogy back uh, to a point in time where they could trace it on back to Abraham. You remember how, how both Luke and, and Matthew traced Jesus' genealogy because that is so important in Jerusalem. If you have salvation, it's because you can trace your genealogy. Your, your salvation is in the loins of Father Abraham. And if you can tr- prove that you came from Abraham, you have salvation. That's, that's really how it, it was built. So that would be both sides of the family. Then. No, it didn't have to be both sides. It, it should be through your father. No, or, no, through I, your no I didn't mean that. I mean, for Abraham, he had more than one child there. <laughs> no, they didn't believe that. Uh, Ishmael didn't count. <laughs> yeah, he just sort of suddenly... Yes. But is that a biblical reference or a spiritual reference? <laughs> or did, well, we're not going to call Ishmael right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, they didn't... Because I'm wondering if that Ishmael's down through the generations traced back to Abraham. I don't, know if, I don't know if they've done any tracing, but they, they believe that they're descendants of Abraham. Right, so they feel they can be saved. Right. So, so you have this, this very elitist kind of salvation. And then there were the people of the land, the Amha'arits. And the Amha'arits were the ignorant rabble who couldn't, didn't have the money, basically, to trace their ancestry back. And they couldn't be saved. They weren't savable. Uh, so when, when Jesus says, the, talks about the narrow door, uh, he's apparently talking to those who hated him and saying someday you're going to see Abraham sitting down and you're not going to be you're not going to be part of that and and is it contingent on your tracing your ancestry back to Abraham no it's not your salvation is not in Abraham so then in 29 when he's talking about the people is he talking about the rabble Yeah, he's talking about everybody else, all the people they despise and yeah. think aren't going to be in the kingdom. But they had written off. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Who didn't know their genealogy. Who didn't know their genealogy. Who maybe didn't have any relationship to Abraham. Yeah. Well, while he's referring, if that's correct, then he's referring to the Pharisees and so forth that were able to do this and the rest weren't able to do it. Both sides were not accepting Christ. It wasn't just Pharisees; other yeah. people there were there for the emotional thing. They'd follow him around, get a right. free meal right. or something. Right. But, so both sides aren't following. So 
that's the, not the point he's pushing, that both sides aren't following him. You know, if you go back to verse 26, then you will say, we ate and drank with you and we taught in our streets. Mm-hmm. We tolerated you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I really wonder if that isn't the characteristic of a lot of us. We tolerate Jesus in our lives. We accept him in our lives. But we don't embrace who he really is. And so his, his saying, I don't know you or where you're coming from, is a way of saying, you don't have a clue who I am, who I really am. So here's the punchline. Verse 30. Indeed, those who are la- there are those who are last, who will be first, and first who will be last. So if you think you're in, you're out. And if you realize you're out and want in, is that the narrow road? If you're the last person in the door, you're still in the door, though. But the problem is he talks about people who are outside in the verse above. Mm-hmm. So I think last is, is has it? a different connotation. Uh, okay. That's the only way it makes sense to me. But you yourselves thrown out. I think possibly in his day, the concept of being last is sort of like you're the last person to home base and, and therefore you're out. You're, okay. you're it for the next round. So, because, because when I was reading this, I was thinking, well, if you're last, you're still getting in. Yeah, yeah the way, that's the way we read it. But I think Jesus here has had a, a little different connotation. Different, different. The, the last were out. So the last were out. Okay. But is it possible that if you think you're in, you're out? And if, you're, if you realize you're out and want in, you're in. I mean, that's boiling down to something very simple. I'm not trying to negate everything else we've talked about in terms of the, of the narrow way. But it seems to me, if you take the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of God. That if you recognize your spiritual need and seek Him, you're in. It's that simple. And most of us are playing the game of Pretense, pretension that we're really good enough. And that's why we're out. And that is a narrow road because whether you're left or right, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can, we tend to play that game. Mm. All right, we have a little bit of time. Let's try 14, 15 to 24. And would you please read this? Okay. Christian. And when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the, t- and at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Does this sound a little bit like the narrow road again? <laughs> yeah, especially with the reclining at the table. So is he referencing, though, that the Pharisees and so forth, they're the ones that are invited. Israel is invited. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and eventually Christ is uh, 
it's really it's really this poor in spirit that have the kingdom of God because he turns to the lame the blind and the and the poor the crippled and he invites them to the kingdom of God it also seems like he's um, exchanging out that deterministic language that might have been implied in the first passage when they're asking how many like will few be saved almost saying that God decides who's saved but in mm-hmm. this one it's almost saying that they decide themselves if they want whether to they want to come yeah but if it's just taken literally it doesn't make sense because mm-hmm. none of us at this table will probably make it at least so far we're not blinded we're not lame and poor well, I mean, just in this. You think of this country, if you have a car yeah. and a place to live, know where your next meal's coming from, you're in the top 1% of the whole world. That's right. The whole bloody world. So you're not poor. Okay. So we can't make it because we're not any of these things. So it can't be just taken on a literal sense here. So I'm wondering he was talking about Israel is invited and so forth and they reject him, they didn't come so then he goes to the rest of the world which at that point we're seeing as I I see it as a a restatement of the first beatitude blessed are the poor in spirit Mm -hmm. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Uh, there's more than one way to be blind yeah. And lame yeah, exactly. and crippled. Right. He talks about right. Pharisees being blind. Essentially. Yeah. But you you can only you can, will only come to the banquet if you realize you're blind, if you realize you're crippled, and right. you realize. That, that, to me, that is a bottom line here with Jesus' parables. What do you do with them? Telling them to compel them to come in. I thought God didn't use force. I don't think this is compulsion against their own will, which is really the definition of force. I think it's it's the people who just wouldn't. Oh, you, you've got to be kidding! You want me to come to that bank? I'm not. I'm not fit to step in that door. I don't. I don't. I don't measure up. I. I don't have anything. You know that you would want. Hmm. No, we want you. <laughs> that's that's the kind of compulsion that I think is being manifested here. I t- and, and notice verse 24. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Is that because he won't let them in? Because they don't want in. And they're not going to want in, especially now that he has a whole bunch of crippled people mm-hmm. in that banquet. Who, what, what would... Uh, oh, I shouldn't say this. This is too political. <laughs> What would a top 1% in the world person want to do with people who are poor? Homeless. Bring in the homeless. Well, that's not our banquet. That's theirs. I see this compel as, as I'm not going to force you, but I'm going to be really persuasive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, this one is not on the list. But I'd like to include yeah. verses 25 to the end of the chapter. So, um, Ed, would you please read that? And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and cometh the co- and come, counteth the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? Least haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it shall begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king said 
not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whatsoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its, its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but man casts it out. He hath he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So we better understand this. <laughs> oh. This is heavy stuff. Mm. Let's take it uh, step by step. What does it mean to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. even life? So even yourself. You're supposed to hate all of these cannot be my disciple. I think it's kind of intuitive just because, um, at least for Jesus' teaching, because he says also that if we hate our own brother, it's like murdering. Yeah. Mm. So how do we hate so, ourselves? Hate our- <laughs> but not commit murder in our heart at the same time. How does that word translate? You know, um, my Bible has a footnote and it says, by the word hate, it has a little star and it says, by comparison of his love for me. So in contrast to his love for me, um, is it possibly disregarding oneself? I think in the context of the chapter, I mean, there's words like uh, the parables of, uh, like if you, yeah, well, not parables, if you go to a banquet, you know, don't, don't set yourself on the highest, but humble yourself. So I think by, you know, possibly by hate means humble, by hate he probably also means, um, later on he says, being willing to give up or say, literally say adieu to all of your possessions. So I think that those two things especially I think are things that he means. So I basically deny yourself, humble yourself, mm. give up all your possessions. That's what he means when he says you, you ought to hate yourself more than... In other words, the opposite of indulging yeah. yourself. Yeah, that's a good word. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I, I wish I could look this up in the Greek. I should have brought my Greek New Testament. I'm wondering if there's two different words for hate. Because there's two different words for fool. You remember Jesus said, whoever says you, you, you fool is in danger of hellfire, right? Yeah. He gives that as the strongest uh, uh, damnation of the three things he talks about there. Well, if, if that's the case, what does it mean when he says, oh, fools and slow of heart? As Jesus calls his disciples, oh fools. Well, it's a different word for fool in the Greek. So um, it, it's probably more of a loving kind of affectionate term, oh you fools, <laughs> you know. Uh, whereas the other one is you fool uh, kind of connotation. So it is important to get the original manuscripts. Yeah. Because Greek, he wasn't speaking in Greek, right? No, but he's being translated in probably, he's probably spoken to Aramaic. But he's been translated right. in Greek. Then, and then Luke, didn't he speak Greek? Right? Yes, Luke was a Greek. Yes. Yeah, so. Well, so if it means humility, self-denial, I think we've been uh, on that. But you notice Jesus says, uh, if you want to build a tower, you first estimate the cost. And that's what you should do before you follow me, is estimate how much it's going to cost you. And can you pay? Can you, can you go through what you'll have to go through to follow me? So that goes back to earlier verses that he doesn't know us if we haven't really thought this through, that we want to be with mm-hmm. him and we're following him. Yeah. can't be just an emotional thing or something to do on Saturday or Sunday or Thursday or Friday or or once in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Or Easter or <laughs> Christmas Eve. Yeah, or New Year's. Mm-hmm. And that's contrasted with those who feel entitled. Yes. Yes. I think if we count the cost, we know we can't pay. I think that's where Jesus is going. 
we can't deliver. We can't complete the foundation. And, and that's where we have to throw ourselves in his mercy and say, this is as far as I can go, please complete. But until we count the cost, we don't realize we think we can. <laughs> oh, I can follow you. You know how Peter was always saying, I will follow you to death. <laughs> and then, you know what happened? And in, this is interesting, in verse 31 to 33, king is going to war. He sits down and considers whether he has 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. How is sending a delegation and suing for peace giving up everything? Isn't that an easy way out? It's not. You then have to pay the rest of your time to that other delegation. Pay tribute. So these Luke verses that we've got through are set part of the reason people are saying, well, we should, oh, say certain groups that wear a certain kind of clothes and, you know, drive automobiles and they're living close to the earth with horse and buggies or the whole concept we should just give away everything and not or live communally or communally right just because uh, that would still be a misunderstanding we're still trying to do it oh what he's saying we should give up everything then we'll be okay mm-hmm. that's not really what he's saying but if you're willing to give up everything Where's your focus? Yeah, and what does that have to do with salt losing its... Say again? What does that have to do with salt losing its savor? How does that happen? What would make salt lose its savor? Its saltiness? No, it get diluted. Just get it wet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Bleeds out all the salt. Well, what is Jesus driving at here? Well, if we lose ourself, then how are you going to be seasoned? Well, I guess Christ will season us. Is that what he means? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, if if salt is gone, if that is us, we lose Yeah, because this is back ourself. to back with giving up everything, and it right. seems like... So if we emotionally, you know, intellectually, spiritually, physically are willing to give up everything, then we'd like, now what are we going to do? I think this is maybe what Jesus means. Uh, I had a nutritionist one time in my Sabbath school class. We were talking about this verse, or a verse like it in another gospel. He pointed out, he said, you know, salt, the way salt works in the water, it transforms the food. It doesn't add something to the food. In a sense, and I think maybe in a sense what it does is give itself up to the transformation of the food. Mm-hmm. Well, and so... Part, it brings well, out the flavor. It brings out the flavor, right, because it transforms that the chemistry, actual chemistry of food. It breaks itself up. Yeah, it breaks itself up and it gives itself up. And I think that's why Jesus is using salt here. So how does this work? I mean, we've come down to the same thing about three times in the last hour. How do we, how do we deny ourselves? How do we give up ourselves to others? How, how does this work? I think it starts with um, what we were talking about last week is realizing that this life we have isn't isn't ours. You know, the more um, the more you read the Bible, the more you realize that this life was given. It was. Um, it's not something I earn. No. <laughs> <laughs> By taking up the cross, um, the cross daily. Uh, what does that mean? I would say like. 
although this might as radical as it might sound, you know, as unorth- I don't know if unorthodox is word as it might sound, but in this context, it does seem like um, Jesus is saying to be a good disciple, you must value people over possessions. And if there's a basically if there's a known need among you and you don't say adieu to your possessions to give to that person, you know, or to use your possessions for the glory of God, then it's like you actually are like salt that's become worthless. And so I think it emphasizes the need to actually to use your possessions wisely. I think that's actually one thing that he's emphasizing here. That, that's one thing it means to him. To value people over things. Yeah. That is very, very contrary to what we're living in America, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Valuing people over things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our, our value system, we have come to see people as objects, have we not? I mean, doesn't isn't that what the media does? Is is put people in a in a cast of being an object to manipulate, to control, to pawn, and to mock and to laugh at, and and, and to leverage for financial and to leverage to, for financial gain. I mean, the list goes on. So this means a complete paradigm shift of values. And what we value most. And, and our, our value is rooted on recognizing how much God valued us. Instead of seeing the cross as a legal payment to get us out of the scrape we're in. Seeing the cross as an exemplification of the value that God places on every human being. I'll send on that note. God, we are powerless to change the direction of the world and the direction that we have taken. We pray that we may realize our need of changing our values, of seeing ourselves and others as so valuable that you would give all heaven and die for us rather than to lose one of us. Pray that that value may become so real to us that we value other people. Thank you and be with us during these Sabbath hours. In Jesus' name.